we're in the middle of a series on the book of Philippians, and so let me, let me catch you up a little bit. So the book of Philippians was, is technically a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. What's interesting about this letter is that he's writing it from jail, and so he's in jail in Rome where he's been for like two years. He was wrongfully accused. He's undergone persecution and suffering, and uh, you know, it's, it's been tough. But essentially what he's been saying the whole way through is he's basically saying, hey, uh, the benefit of, of my suffering is that this is an opportunity for me not only to preach Jesus, uh, but also for me to kind of exemplify what it means to have faith and trust in Jesus. And so he writes this letter to the Philippians, um, this Philippian church, uh, the church there in Philippi, Paul planted it and or started that church there. Um, and as he started this church, he really started it in a town that wasn't particularly Jewish. It was very Roman, in fact. Uh, Philippi was a, really a retirement community in some respects for uh, Roman soldiers. And so it was an interesting place uh, for the gospel to take root and to start a church. And so over the course of the last few weeks, we've been talking about, or Paul has been talking about, what it looks like um, for him to uh, be a follower of Christ and ultimately to preach the gospel in this context of being enslaved or imprisoned in Rome. And what's interesting is he keeps coming back again and again and again to his thesis or his anchor, if you will. And his anchor is this, that your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who even though he was God, made himself nothing, and he took on the form of a servant. Does that make sense? In other words, the most powerful person in the world said, you know what, I'm going to put my rights, I'm going to put my entitlements aside so that I can selflessly serve and love the people that I came to save, to redeem, and to restore. Last week, uh, we talked about um, a passage of Scripture, and in it, basically, it's the section where Paul says, you know, we are supposed to work out our, sal- our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, the outworking of the fact that we have been saved is that we, we live this life with honor, and we live this life with awe about who God is and what he's done. He then said, do everything without grumbling or arguing, right? And again, he's going, taking all these things back to, this, uh, to the, the, really the pattern and the image and the example of Jesus. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And then finally, he says, the ability to trust in Christ as my Savior, the ability uh, for me to actually rejoice in the face of suffering comes from the fact that I know that ultimately God has saved me, that ultimately it's all going to be okay. Now, this morning, we're leading into verses 19 through 30 of chapter 2, where Paul will uh, undertake a couple other issues as he writes to this Philippian church. Let me take a moment. I'm going to read verses 19 through 30. You can follow along if you would like to. It will also be on the screen, so you can read up there. But follow along with me if you will. Philippians 2, verses 19 through 30. Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for you all, for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad 
and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that, uh, again, though you could have um, left us in darkness after we um, rebelled and turned our, turned our backs against you, rather you didn't do that, but you sent your son Jesus into the world to be a light. And so, Father, it's through the light of Jesus um, that we know who we really are, that um, we're more broken than we realize. And yet, it's, at the same time, it's through the light of Jesus um, that you reveal to us that we're more loved than we ever could imagine. Father, I thank you so much um, for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that is our, uh, our refuge and our strength. Father, we pray this morning that uh, you would be with us, that you would be upon the people in this room. I pray that no one would be able to leave here this morning without having had an encounter with you, the living God. I pray that you would do this um, for your own honor and for your own glory and for the good of those people um, who you draw to yourself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things this morning. Amen. So those of you in the room, uh, you know which ones uh, of me, you guys know who, that I'm a big football fan. And uh, so basically my fandom used to be college football and pro football. As I've had children, I'm less able to pay attention to college football, which is somewhat depressing to me. But, you know, I've had to sacrifice that part of my life. I do get a chance to pay attention a little bit to college football, I mean to pro football. And uh, one of the things that came out a few years back is that the Philadelphia Eagles started to build a team that looked a little bit like a dynasty. You know, this happens every now and then, whether it's with the Yankees or uh, sometimes it's with uh, the Patriots. Sometimes it was, you know, with a basketball team like the Miami Heat where they started to get all these superstars together. But what happened in 2012 is that the Philadelphia Eagles started to attract all these different superstars who it took pay cuts in order to come and play for the Philadelphia Eagles. And so on the Philadelphia Eagles defense, they already had an all-pro cornerback, right? This is the guy that covers the wide receivers for the other team. And in that offseason, they actually were able to sign two other all-pro cornerbacks, a guy named Nandi Asamwa and Dominique Rogers Cromartie. They added those two all-pro players to a team that already had Michael Vick, Vince Young, the guy that only lost two football games in college and single-handedly won the national championship by himself, LaShawn McCoy, all-pro running back, Deshaun Jackson, Jeremy Macklin, both first-round wide receiver picks. D'Amico Ryans, an all-pro linebacker, and the list goes on and on and on. They were loaded. And so in the offseason, all of the pundits, these people that write about the NFL, were saying, this team's going to be unbeatable. They're going to be awesome. And uh, they said they've just got too much talent for anybody to hang with them. And so the season began, and what happened was is they won three out of their first four games, which was pretty good. In fact, they were, everyone was surprised that they even managed to lose a game. But what was interesting is, in the remaining 12 games, they only won one more game. And they finished their season 4-12, and 12, abysmal. In fact, the year before, they had been 8-8 eight and eight before they gathered all of this talent, and everybody wondered what had happened. There's an article that speaks to this a little bit. It came out in a magazine called The Scientific American. And uh, the article was by a woman named Dr. May, and the article was called The Surprising Problem of Too Much Talent, okay? The Surprising Problem of Too Much Talent. She's at the College of Charleston, by the way, for you South Carolinians out there. And uh, here's what she writes in this article, The Surprising Problem of Too Much Talent. She says this, when it comes to winning games, most pro sports teams go after talented pl- players. Everyone wants a team of stars, But a new research study published in Psychological Science argues that too many talented players can actually hurt the teams 
overall performance. The research study is called the too much talent effect. When the researchers analyzed professional sports, especially basketball and soccer, they discovered that talented players help teams win, but only up to a point. Teams loaded with star players found that the too much talent effect actually hurt the team's chances of winning. Teams with the greatest proportion of elite athletes performed worse than those with more moderate proportions of top-level players. Star-studded basketball teams had less assists, less rebounds than teams with more average players. The research concluded when teams need to come together, more talent can actually tear them apart. An article summarizing the study observed, why is too much talent a bad thing? And she says, think teamwork. In many endeavors, success requires team effort towards a goal that is beyond the capability of any one individual. And here's kind of the meat of where I'm going with this in this last um, couple of sentences here. She says this, when a team roster is flooded with individual talent, pursuit of personal star status may prevent the attainment of team goals. The basketball player chasing a point record, for example, may cost the team by taking risky shots instead of passing to a teammate. In other words, part of what ends up happening is when you have too much talent on a team, uh, a lot of times the reason these players are great, a lot of times the reason that they're elite is because they're very selfish, right? Because they're very self-centered. And you can only have so many of those people that need the ball when uh, the clock is ticking down, right? And so the fundamental problem with the Philadelphia Eagles is there were too many me-first players. The problem with the study, this too-much-talent effect, is that very often these elite players are me-first type of players, right? And and, and uh, essentially what ends up happening is that ends up destroying the fabric of teamwork, right? Now here's what's interesting. David Brooks is writing Brooks right now has just published a book called The Road to Character. And uh, basically this, uh, this book undertakes looking at previous generations and how their selflessness in opposition to their self-centeredness fundamentally is not only what made them great, but it's fundamentally what made America great to begin with. Now, uh, this is um, on his book. This is actually an interview where I took one question out of a Huffington Post interview. And so just follow along with me as I um, read this, and you can hear what he had to say. So the question that the Huffington Post interviewer posed was this. You say that we've shifted from a culture of humility, in other words, uh, the greater good is more important than my individual good, to a culture of what he calls the big me. In other words, what's most important is my personal fulfillment, my personal attainment, my self-actualization. So again, they say, you've, you say that the culture shifted from a culture of humility to a culture of the big me, but was there ever really a culture of humility, the Huffington Post interviewer asks. And David Brooks answers by saying this. He says, human nature is biased in the direction of self-centeredness. Let me read that one more time. This is, new, you know, this is a guy that writes for the New York Times, speaks on NPR. He says, human nature is biased in the direction of self-centeredness. But there are certainly times when some behavior is frowned upon and some behavior is rewarded. There were times as late as the 1940s when putting a college sticker on the back of your car would have been frowned upon because it would have been sort of an attempt to say, look at me, right? When writing in a way that exposed all your secrets would have been frowned upon. When even dressing in a way that exposed your body would have been frowned upon. And we do studies that measure narcissism. Narcissism is this idea that I'm sort of the center of reality, that it's really all about me, right? It's, it's sort of unhealthy self-centeredness. And he says scored, scores on this test called the narcissism test have risen 30% in the last 20 years. So scores have risen 30% in the last 20 years. 
And he says, so I think there's evidence that we are just more egotistical than we once were. So what he says in that answer, and it was a packed answer, and it's really what the book is getting towards, is that he basically says, it's human nature that we would be self-centered, that we look out for our own interests. Like, kind of hard to argue that that's already our default setting. He then goes on to say, certain cultures reward that, but other cultures frown upon it. And part of what he's saying in the book, too, is that we now live in a culture that really celebrates um, self-actualization and self-centeredness as opposed to doing what's best for the greater good. And then finally, he says, the evidence of this is in this narcissism test. We live in a highly narcissistic, individualistic, self-serving culture, right? Okay, I promise I'm going somewhere with this. That's interesting, but I'm going somewhere, okay? So let me, let me throw out another quote. George Bernard Shaw says this. He says, a man's interest in the world is only the overflow from his interest in himself. Let me read that one more time. A man's interest in the world, right, whether that's um, a seemingly pure interest uh, or a, a helpful interest or an altruistic interest, a man's interest in the world is really only the overflow from his interest in himself. And here's what Paul says. Paul, in the midst of all of this letter to the Philippians, he's in jail, Epaphroditus, Timothy, the Philippian church. In the middle of all of this, in verse 21, he makes... An interesting statement. He says this. He affirms what David Brooks says. He affirms what George Bernard Shaw says. He, he affirms what Dr. May says when he says, for everyone looks out for their own interests, right? For everyone looks out for their own interests. It's our default setting, really, to be selfish. And again, I'm going to unpack this more later. But again, the idea here that Paul is getting at is he's saying, look, our default setting is this brokenness. It's this sinfulness. It's the idea that we all look out for our own interest. F. Scott Fitzgerald, we've got a quote that goes up on the screen here a minute ago, in a moment, says this, this selfishness is not only a part of me, it's the most living part, right? Isn't that interesting? He says, this selfishness is the most living part. It's the thing in me, it's like a weed, you know what I mean? While the grass is dying, right, while the flowers fade, the, you know, the weed just keeps on living, right? This selfishness is the most living part of me. It is somehow, it is Somehow by transcending rather than by avoiding that, selfish, that selfishness that I can bring poise and balance into my life. In other words, what he's saying there is he's saying I can't just root out this selfishness. I wish I could, but I can't. It has to be transcended by something else. In other words, something else has to become more meaningful, right? Something else has to become more beautiful to me than me. Does that make sense? In, in order for my selfishness to be uprooted, in order for my idol of self to be rooted out, it actually has to be replaced by something more beautiful, more powerful, more lovely, more majestic. And of course, what Paul is pointing us to over and over again is that thing that is more beautiful, that thing that is more majestic, that thing that is more worthy is Jesus who, though he was in the very image of God, humbled himself and became a servant. If that was true for Jesus, how much more so should it be true of us? As we look at Jesus, this selfishness is rooted out. So what does Paul have to say in these following verses, though? What, what is his response to this self-centeredness, this uh, extreme focus on self-actualization? He's already given us a picture of Jesus' selfishness. That's what I just talked about. But he now, in writing to the Philippians, he gives them two other examples of selflessness, two other examples of really what true discipleship looks like. And true discipleship is nothing more than following Jesus and trusting in him for your righteousness, he gives them the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let me do this. Let me talk about three points. 
or three ways in which true discipleship sort of appears. The first is this. True disciples selflessly care about the welfare of others. That's one of the things that Paul says, that true disciples selflessly care about the welfare of others. Look at verses 20 and 25. He says this, and he's speaking here about Timothy. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Verse 25, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs, right? And so there are two words that stand out here. There's the word welfare and there's the word needs. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, look at Timothy, look at Epaphroditus. These are men who, who are true disciples. They're true followers of Christ. They're truly selfless, not completely, they're not perfect, but they'll truly care about the welfare and the needs of others. And the way that we've seen that already is that Timothy cares for the welfare of Paul. Right? He's been with Paul as Paul has been in Rome. At the beginning, this, this letter is titled From Paul and From Timothy. Timothy's been caring for the welfare, for the needs of Paul. And what Paul says here is, you remember he was with me when I started the church in Philippi, right? And he took care of your needs. He cared for your welfare. Then he left his life behind in order to serve, to become a servant for you. He, he then talks about, Paul talks about Epaphroditus, and he says, Epaphroditus cared for my needs, right? You sent him here with this gift to bring to me, and he came, and he not only brought the gift, but he stayed with me. He served me. He took care of me, so much so that we'll read later on that he almost did it unto his own death. And then we see that Jesus cared for our needs, that Jesus cared for our welfare. It's why he came. Jesus cared for Mary and Martha when he wept with them, when he raised their brother from the dead. Jesus cared for the welfare and the needs of the 5,000 when he was preaching to them and they were hungry and he fed them. Jesus had pity on the masses. He cared for their needs. He cared for their welfare. He healed the man born blind, right? He cast out the demon from the demon-possessed boy. He cared for his needs and his welfare. He loved the people, right? The rich young ruler, the Pharisees, enough to actually expose their idols. That was their deepest need. That was the thing that was in their greatest welfare. He cared. Jesus cared for our welfare. He cared for our needs. He laid down his life, his rights, right? He laid down his self-actualization in order that he might care for us. There was a, an article that was published a couple of years ago in the, in the Los Angeles Times by a sports writer named Bill Plaschke. I don't know if you've ever, uh, I think, watched a show called um, Pardon the Interruption, but I think Bill Plaschke's on that sometimes on ESPN. But in this article, the article was entitled, Corey Hahn is Still Part of a Team. And Corey Hahn was this young man who, uh, in around 2010, was voted Mr. Baseball for all of California. And so he was a fantastic baseball player. He was a great hitter. He was a great fielder. He even pitched. And uh, so there was one game in high school where he pitched a perfect game. He uh, made several game-winning catches and even hit the game-winning home run. And it was just, you know, this amazingly successful young man. He was offered a scholarship by the San Diego, I'm sorry, he was offered a contract by the San Diego Padres. He was also offered a scholarship by Arizona State. He sort of weighed the two, and he basically said, you know what, I'm going to actually go to college and get my degree. He went to Arizona State and played for the baseball team there. In the third game, he was sliding in head first uh, to one of the bases, and he broke one of the vertebrae in his back, after which he became a C5 quadriplegic, right? Just this amazing story of tragedy. This kid had all the ability in the world. He was going to be sort of a big-time player. He could have had financial independence for all of his life, and he broke his back, right? 
Now, the point of the article, however, isn't just to talk about that. The point of art, the article was to talk about how his father ultimately left everything aside, his own interests, his own desires, in order to take care of his son. And so I'm going to enter in. I'm just going to read a section of this article right here. Corey, that's the son, says this. He says, my goals don't take days anymore as a C5 quadriplegic. They take weeks. They may even take months. But as always, Plaschke says, Corey is able to stretch toward those goals from the broad shoulders of the guy he calls Pops. There were times when I would wonder, Corey says, what's better, being dead or being like this? In other words, it was so bad he thought it'd be better to be dead sometimes. But he says this, I quote, but then I look up and I see my dad and I think, if he can do it, I can do it. When Corey moved back to the Arizona State campus to continue his studies, Dale moved into an extended stay hotel down the street. Together they get Corey ready for his daily classes. Each day brings a little more independence for Corey. Recently, they celebrated that Corey was using his once lifeless hands to wash his own hair. Corey is also able to feed himself, only after countless days of practicing with his dad. It was really messy, Corey said, but we did it. Together, they drive to campus in Dale's truck, where they go from street parking spot to Corey's first class, with Corey wheeling himself most of the way. Dale says, I see all these college kids running and skating across campus, and then I see Corey just chugging along in his chair, the world moving past him, and I'm so, so proud of him. There's a picture of Dale lifting Corey out of the car and putting him in his wheelchair. He says this, we live for the little victories. We're a team. After lunch, they go to a gym for therapy, and then his father might drop him off at a Sun Devils baseball practice or a game before taking him home for the night. Corey will hang out with friends until about 11 p.m., at which point his father returns to his room to lay him into bed and to put the television on a timer and slip out with a simple Good night, buddy. Right? It's a great picture. And what it's a picture of is it's a picture of someone who basically says, you know what? I'm going to suspend my needs in order to take care of the needs and the welfare of someone else. Does that make sense? And part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying true discipleship is selfless. True discipleship or, or true following Jesus, when you follow Jesus, what that yields is this genuine care for other people, so much so that it'll root out your self-centeredness and it will make you care genuinely about the needs of the people around you. Again, don't forget that Paul is referring us to the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, but ultimately, ultimately he's pointing us to the example of Jesus who humbled himself and became a servant. As we follow Christ, we're caring genuinely for the needs of others, right? And so the question for all of us in this room this morning is, have we reached a point where the image of Jesus as our servant who humbled himself uh, and came and served us selflessly, is that image of Jesus so beautiful in us that it's in the process of rooting us out of our self-centeredness? That's number one, is that true disciples not only care selflessly about the work of others, but the second point is this that Paul makes, I think, is that true disciples or followers of Jesus are selflessly committed to the cause of Christ. So it's not just that they take care of the needs of others and really care for their welfare, but is there also that they're also committed to the cause of Christ. Look at verses 21 and 22. They say this, for everyone looks out for their own interests. We've already talked about that. Another way of interpreting that is that everyone's all about their own cause or causes, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And so here Paul recommends 
and honors Timothy to the Philippian church because Timothy has selfly proved that he is selflessly committed not to his own cause, but he's selflessly committed to the cause of Jesus Christ, right? Or to the interests of Jesus. And so the question is, what were the interests of Jesus? You know, as we see Jesus living in the New Testament, in the Gospels, what were the interests of Jesus? What was Jesus' cause? Paul answers that question in verse 22, and he calls it this thing called the gospel, which we'll get to in just a moment. But ultimately what we see as we look into the Bible and into the gospels is that Jesus' cause, his primary cause, was to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, Paul, uh, Luke writes this story, and uh, the story is about this man named Zacchaeus who, if you remember, was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And uh, so in order to see Jesus, Jesus was passing through town, there was a giant crowd, and because Zacchaeus was curious, he wanted to see Jesus, and so he climbed up in a sycamore tree and uh, looked out and saw Jesus. What was interesting is that as Jesus walked through this massive crowd with all of these different people, that Jesus made a beeline over to Zacchaeus and sought him out. Listen to the words of Luke chapter 19. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho. This was on the way up to Jerusalem. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, which means he was extra hated by the people. He was, you know, very much extra the rebel and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. No BP jokes. Verse 4, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And listen to this word, these words. Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. In other words, Jesus was on a mission. It wasn't optional. It wasn't, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to hang out with Zacchaeus today. It was, I must stay at your house today. I've come to seek and to save the lost. I'm coming to seek and to save you, verse 6. So he, Zacchaeus, came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And here's where Jesus affirms what his cause is. Here's what Jesus Jesus affirms what he's interested in. He says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. I'm here to redeem people. I'm here to restore people into a relationship with my Father. I'm here to undo the brokenness of sin in their lives. I'm here to undo the brokenness of sin in community. I'm here to undo the brokenness of the fall. I'm here to seek and to save the lost, right? And that's, honestly, that's what true disciples selflessly do as well. And all this flies in the face of what our culture is telling us today. So does this mean that everybody in here today needs to quit their day job, as a parent, right, or as a banker, or as a lawyer, or as an educator? Does this mean that everybody needs to quit their day job and become a missionary, or a pastor, or a young life worker, or a campus outreach person, and go share the gospel with everybody all the time? It does not mean that at all. Does it mean that we need to go door-to-door evangelism and do that all the time? Uh, what this means, actually, is that everything that we do, every relationship that we have, should ultimately be motivated by the truth that God entered into humanity in order to redeem humanity and in order to restore humanity, right? We can do that as fathers with our children. 
We can do that as bankers with the people that we work with. We can do that edu- with educators, um, as educators with the kids that we teach, right? We can do that as friends. We can do that as students. We can do that as wives and husbands. But true discipleship not only cares about the welfare of others, but it also is selflessly committed to the cause of Christ. And so the question for you guys this morning, the question for me is, am I selflessly committed to the cause of Christ? Is my purpose statement to seek and to save the lost, to bring the gospel to bear upon humanity? This truth that Jesus gave up his rights as the king in order to come and to be a servant, in order to meet the welfare and the needs of us. And our real needs, of course, were spiritual, right? And so the question is, are we truly following Jesus? Do we look like Jesus? Are we selflessly caring not only about the needs of others, but the work of Christ, the work of, and the cause of Christ and the gospel? The last thing that we see in this section is that true disciples are both of those other things, but true disciples are also selflessly willing to lay down their lives for the work of Christ, right? That They're willing to say whatever it takes Jesus, you're more beautiful to me than I am. The beauty that I've seen in you, the majesty, the fact that you gave up your life for me is enough to root out that self-centeredness. And so they're willing to lay down their lives for the work of Christ. Verse 29, verse 29 and 30 said this, So then welcome him, that is Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. If you remember, the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus to Rome to bring a gift to Paul and also to simply be with him. And Epaphroditus ended up staying with Paul. In fact, he served Paul day and night, caring for his physical needs, caring for his relational needs, caring for all of his needs. And he served Paul in his imprisonment. And it was during this time, serving Paul on behalf of the Philippians, that he became ill and almost died for what Paul calls the work of Christ. Does that make sense? He almost died for the work of Christ. He was willing to die for the work of Christ. Now, I could tell you story after story of missionaries, right? We could talk about Eric Little. You guys remember the story of Eric Little, uh, the sprinter from the whatever 1920 Olympic Games, who after he won the gold medal in the Olympics, went to China and served for the rest of his life and died in a prisoner of war camp because of his Christianity. I could talk about Nate Saint, one of the men that was killed by the Alka Indians. I could talk about Dr. Livingston, who died while in Africa taking the gospel to Africa. I could talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave his life uh, for following Christ. I could talk about all of those people. I'm going to tell you a story you may not know uh, the details of, and it's the story of Nelson Mandela, right? Now, you know, the Nelson Mandela, part of what he did was he fought against apartheid uh, in Africa, what he did is he, he fought against the racial inequality that existed there in South Africa. He fought for the freedom of, uh, of the Africans that were there in South America, that they would be treated equally. What many of you don't know is that, as with Dr. Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela's passion to do this work grew particularly and precisely out of his Christianity, right? What What doesn't get told sort of in the stories is that Nelson Mandela grew up with a wonderful, godly Christian mother who raised him to see the beauty of Jesus. And not only that, but uh, early on in his life, she sent him to live uh, with Methodist, um, a Methodist pastor and his wife, and they fundamentally spent some time raising him so much so that he became a passionate Christian in his youth. And so what he did in South Africa really was an outflowing and actually an expression of the work of Christ. I'm going to read an article or a section of an article from the New York Times written by uh, a man named John Mahama, and uh, the title of this article was called Mandela Taught a Continent to Forgive. Listen 
uh, to the brief section of this article. In 1964, Nelson Mandela began his prison sentence at Rodden Island, the former site of a leper colony and a home for the insane. For the next 27 years, Mandela would only be known as prisoner number 46664. Day after day, for 27 years, he labored in a limestone quarry, chipping away at the white rock under a bright and merciless sun. Without, protective, without the benefit of protective eyewear, Mandela virtually destroyed his tear ducts, which for years robbed his ability to cry. Then on February 11, 1990, something surprising happened. Mandela was released from prison. The world wondered how he would respond. And I would say the world wondered, those who knew, how he as a Christian would respond. Would he rage at the end of the world, at the world, and the oppressive system that had him imprisoned? Would he express regret for the suffering his convictions that, had, that his convictions had caused him? Instead, Mandela quietly spoke of the nobility of being able to suffer for what we believe. Does that make sense? This is a precise and particular outgrowth of the fact that he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus gave up his rights, right? Jesus could have claimed his rights as the king, but instead Jesus became a servant. He made himself nothing, nothing so that he could take care of our welfare and our needs. Mandela quietly spoke of the nobility of being able to suffer for what we believe. Quote, he says this, to go to prison because of your convictions, he said, and be prepared to suffer for what you believe in is something worthwhile, something beautiful. It's something weighty. It's something majestic. For those of us that are entrenched in a very self-centered and self-actualized lifestyle, for those of us who are just sinful human beings, it's wonderful to know that there's something that can root us out of that and can be more beautiful to us than ourselves are. He goes on to say, it's an achievement for a man to do his duty on earth, irrespective of the consequences. In other words, it's a beautiful thing to see the kingdom of God come to pass. It's a beautiful thing to see the work of Christ. It's a beautiful thing to see the implications of the gospel, regardless of what it costs you. He was willing to die in the same way that all of those missionaries were willing to die. Now, the question is this, are you willing, am I willing to lay down my life for the work of Christ? This doesn't necessarily mean going to some foreign country, right? Although it might mean that. More likely, laying down your life for the work of Christ will mean loving your life like your wife, like Christ loved the church. That's probably more like what it will look like, right? You can think about the different implications of that. Laying down your life for the cause of Christ will likely mean making dinner when you'd rather take a nap or go out to dinner with friends, right? Laying down your life may mean not doing and saying whatever the popular kids do and say, and as a result, you might lose a little bit of your social life. Whatever the result, true disciples of Jesus are always willing to lay down their lives for the work of Christ because fundamentally Christ is more beautiful. Christ is more majestic. Christ is, is, uh, is, is so full of glory and majesty that when we look at the example of Christ who laid down his life and laid aside his rights, we look at him and we say, that's more beautiful. That's a life well lived. And so true discipleship selflessly looks to the welfare of others. True discipleship selflessly cares for the cause of Christ, even when it's difficult. And true disciples are even willing to lay down their lives selflessly for those whose welfare and needs they seek to serve. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for pictures of true disciples um, like Paul, like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, 
Father, like um, many of the men and women of Seven Hills Fellowship, I thank you, Father, that we can look at people who've endured hardship and suffering, and they've laid aside their rights for your glory. Father, I thank you for Jesus, uh, ultimately, who laid aside his rights and his privileges and his entitlements. I thank you for the picture of Jesus, um, who is not only our model, but also our substitute. But I thank you that we can look at Jesus, um, and we can see that he is more beautiful, that the life he lived is actually more compelling. Father, I pray that, that that image of Jesus would root out our self-centeredness and, uh, and would bring us to a point of, uh, of caring ultimately about you, your glory, the name of your son Jesus, and that it would even cause us to care for the welfare and the needs of those that we come into contact with. Father, I pray that you would change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.